Welcome to Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony Caldellas, your host. Well, I used to believe two things about the beginning and the end of Byzantine history, and one is that it is fairly easy to say when Byzantine history ends. This is with the conquest of Constantinople by the Ottoman Turks in 1453, or if you want to include the Empire of Trebizond, a splinter parallel Roman state in Asia Minor, move it ahead a few years, but that it was difficult to say exactly when Byzantine history begins, and uh, and this is why you find textbooks choosing a whole range of dates uh, from the late 3rd century to the 7th century for when Byzantine history proper begins. Um, and, and there's a reason why there's no consensus on that point. In fact, no real understanding or discussion of the underlying issues of when we say that Roman history ends and Byzantine history begins. Now, I should say that I have discovered that I was wrong uh, about one of those two points. <laughs> Namely, it's not so easy to say when Byzantine history ends because it turns out that the history of the Roman people as a distinct people in this particular sense, an ethnic group, continues in Ottoman times. Um, it used to be believed that the Ottoman Empire was governed by religious categories and that all the Orthodox uh, people of the empire were lumped together into one category that was called Roman, and this included Bulgarians and, and Serbs and Greek speakers and Vlachs and so on. Um, and that so this is a completely different um, uh, organization of social groups than existed in, in Byzantium. And it turns out that's not true, um, that the history of the Roman people as a distinct ethnic group continued, uh, was distinguished uh, from Bulgarians and Serbs and Vlachs and so on in the same ways in which those groups were distinguished in Byzantine times. And that in fact, the history of this Roman people continues into the 20th century, although many great changes took place at that time, um, and in some respects continued to the 21st century. Okay, I'd love to have a podcast episode about that process, uh, but today we're going to be looking at the other end of this historical trajectory, namely this m murky question about when, if ever, Byzantine history really starts. And I should say that, um, just to orient you conceptually, that the term Byzantine... Um, now, you will sometimes read that it was coined in the 16th century by Western scholars to be used for what we understand subsequently as Byzantium. Um, in, in fact, that's not really true, or it's inaccurate to the point of being misleading. Um, the term Byzantium as a, as a historical category for historians and scholars really didn't come into play until the later 19th century. Um, until then, uh, Byzantium was called other things in the West, primarily. Um, so the, the category, the rubric of Byzantium as something that we've been dealing with is really only 130, 140 years old. Um, but uh, anyway, just to make my position clear about this, um, I personally don't believe that, um, that there is any moment that when Byzantine history begins, as opposed to Roman history, um, the fact that there are so many different dates um, it points to a whole range of very subtle or long-term transformations that were taking place in Roman history in the areas of geography and religion, language and literature and so on, um, not one of which, you know, they didn't all coincide at some point. 
um, any particular development, take the foundation of Constantinople or whatever, doesn't coincide with many of the others. Um, and so we're talking about long-term processes, so long, in fact, um, as you will hear in this episode, that it really doesn't make much sense to posit some new beginning that merits a different name called Byzantium. Uh, today we're going to be talking about one of the periods that is sometimes used by historians um, to mark this transition, namely the later 5th and 6th centuries, the age of Justinian. And my guest today is Marion Cruz, who's a professor of classics at the University of Cincinnati, and he has recently published a monograph um, called The Politics of Roman Memory uh, from the Fall of the Western Empire to the Age of Justinian. And we're very much going to be talking about the politics of Roman memory uh, in this discussion. Now, his book gets uh, into the close readings of the authors of the Age of Justinian, including Justinian himself, and how they reconfigured their Roman identity in light of the fact that the Eastern Empire was now the only um, remaining Roman Empire. Um, but we're not going to be talking about the you know close textual readings here. We're going to be talking about some of the uh, broad problems that historians face in, in coping with this transformation. Um, just to make my position clear at the start, I believe that Byzantine history should be understood as only a phase um, of Roman history. It's not a, some a different essence. It doesn't mark some great historical rupture. Um, in fact, if you look at it this way, uh, Byzantine history accounts for the majority of Roman history, especially if you, you know, pull it a little bit earlier on the front end and extend it down to the 20th or 21st centuries uh, on the other. Uh, but that's a topic for a different discussion. Um, here's my conversation with Marion Cruz about the later 5th and 6th centuries. Hello, Marion. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So this is a very big question that we have here. When does Roman history end and Byzantine history begin? And uh, I was excited to bring you on to the podcast because you can help us tackle this question from the flip side. In other words, it, it doesn't make much sense to talk about Byzantine history beginning as some sort of separate thing. And we'll talk about whether it actually is or not. Um, unless you can also provide the parallel argument for what is ending on the other side of it. Um, and so um, I think you're ideally positioned to talk about the problems and pitfalls of structuring Roman history in such a way that it might be said to end at some point or turn into something else. And you've written a book that's uh, about those kinds of anxieties as expressed by authors of the 6th century writing just before or under the Emperor Justinian. Um, and so I thought we would just start with the book a little bit. And why don't you uh, tell us a little bit what your goals were in it, and what kinds of questions do you raise in it? Um, and then we'll talk about how, you know, all those authors are saying things that might be relevant for the question of when does Rome begin and Byzantium, uh, when does Rome end and Byzantium begin? Yeah, so I think the best way for me to describe the book is to walk through how it is that I arrived at the project of the books, or my own process in terms of discovering 
um, what was going on in the sixth century. So my point of entry was the novels of Justinian. So um, listeners may know that Justinian codifies all of Roman law, and he finishes this process in the 530s. But after that point, he continues to publish new laws, the so-called novels. So when I talk about Justinian's novels, he's not writing, you know, supermarket paperbacks. He's writing new laws. And what's unique about these, really, and unique about them compared to every other emperor and every other part of the legal surviving legal tradition we have from the period before Justinian, is that they preserve intact rhetorical prefaces and rhetorical justifications that we know existed for earlier laws, but were stripped out in the process of editing. So we don't have them for really that many other laws, and certainly not as large and coherent a corpus as we have for Justinian, for whom we have over 140 of these. So in some of these rhetorical prefaces and the rhetorical elements in these novels, there are discussions of history. And I was interested because a lot of them were odd. So for instance, what does Justinian care? Why would his audience care about the origins of the Thracians or the Pisidians or any of these other groups? Why is he trying to, in some novels, articulate a history of the consulship or a normative history of the imperial office? I mean, the imperial office has been around for more than 500 years. Justinian doesn't need to defend it. It's been a while since Augustus actually needed to defend the existence of this office. And that led me to ask the question of how this fit into larger discussions of history taking place during this period. And what I found was that not only are a lot of other authors talking about the same time periods and some of the same historical questions as Justinian, a lot of them are talking directly to Justinian. Um, in particular, the sort of major voices of the reign of Justinian who begin publishing mostly in the 550s, they're responding explicitly to the historical formulations in the novels as a way of responding to the larger politics implied by those laws. So if you use a certain historical justification to promote a certain type of reform, one way of attacking that reform is by attacking the historical justification for it, uh, especially if you're writing for an audience of people who are very familiar with this body of law. And so then the question was, well, why is anyone doing this? Is this typical for Romans? Uh, is this something that, say, Severus was doing or much earlier Rome, uh, Roman emperors were doing? And some of those questions I can't answer, but I was able to put it into a broader context in the sort of aftermath of 476. There are there's a kind of crisis of Roman identity that really comes to the fore with the reign of the Emperor Anastasius, who comes to the throne in 491. And he's the um, the second emperor before Justinian. So it goes Justinian, Justin the first, sorry, Anastasius, Justin the first, and Justinian. And when he comes to the throne, he actually comes to the throne amidst cries by the crowd of Constantinople that they need a real Roman, a true Roman to be emperor. And we might talk a little bit about why that is, but that's sort of another another question. And this is in the aftermath. So the Anastasius is the first emperor to become emperor after 476. So I think that there are some anxieties about what it means to be Roman, especially a Greek Roman in this period. And what I was able to identify, I think, in some of the major authors leading up to the reign of Justinian is an attempt to construct a kind of Greek Roman identity and a, a very sort of quick transition from a reactionary or responsive uh, insecurity about can we be Roman without the Western Empire? Can we be Roman without the city of Rome? To very quickly, a, a very positive and emphatic assertion, yes, we can. And <laughs> not only can we do that, we can do it better. Because if you think about it, we have all the strengths of the Romans and this incredible uh, corpus of Greek literature. 
and cultural heritage that we can also deploy in some of these problems. Um, in terms of the questions that are being asked then, it's sort of why is this process occurring at this period? Um, how typical is this? And can we say that to a meaningful extent, the role of historian in chief is actually a sort of constitutive element of imperial power? Uh, and that's some, an interesting question that has implications going back all the way to Augustus, who's raised Gestae, this is a big inscription biography of his life that he put up all over the empire. Interestingly, in both Greek and Latin, in different parts of the empire, really is the beginning of this process or the, the first visible el moment of uh, an emperor really trying to control the historical record of their own reign and sort of interfere in history in this way. Right. So we have a convergence of circumstances here um, that lead to this uh, burst of anxiety uh, about a great many issues regarding Roman history. Uh, we have the um, the uh, abolition of the Western Roman Empire or the Western Roman Imperial position in 476. Um, we have the fact that the surviving Roman Empire is the Eastern Roman Empire. It's alone now. Uh, New Rome no longer controls the, the West. It's not linked to a Western imperial state. Its predominant uh, elite culture is Greek. And we have... Uh, I mean, we think of Justinian <laughs> in many ways. Uh, you know, he's a he's a lawgiver. He's a conqueror. He's a builder. He's a lover. Uh, you f you flesh out Justinian the historian. I think you rightly put him in that context. I mean, he he is, you know, revamping Roman history to suit his needs. And and he's and you, you're interesting. It's interesting you said that yes we can because Justinian is both a yes we can and a make Rome great again kind of emperor. Right, undoubtedly, and uh, I think one of the reasons Justinian has held such appeal for so many people, and one of the reasons why even something like the field of classics, which has traditionally been a little uneasy adopting him as a a figure inside of their wheelhouse has been drawn to him is precisely because of how hard he is to characterize. I mean, one of the most famous characterizations of Justinian is as a, a kind of ancient Stalin, yes. because in terms of his aspirations, and certainly in terms of his rhetoric, there is a, a totalitarian streak. But of course, the capacity to implement that in the ancient world was much more limited. Yeah, he wanted to outlaw playing dice. And anyway, um, so tell us a little bit about the the specific problems of Roman historical memory. So in what ways are these authors at that time configuring Roman history as problematically political, as something that they can disagree over? And 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 then we'll we'll get to you know some of the same issues today. Uh, but uh, just tell us you know the axes of debate about Roman history then. Right. And I think it'd be helpful to clarify here that when we talk about historical memory, it kind of comes in two flavors. So there's social memory, which is the study of the role of memory and the construction of specific social groups. How does a, a group of people construct themselves through memory? And that's obviously something that's pretty important to the Romans during this period. And then there's cultural memory, which is a broader study of the role of collective memory in a society at large. And we sort of see both elements of um, memory operating during this period. So the authors who are responding to Justinian are, especially those who are writing the, in the 550s, kind of the, the nadir, the lowest point in his reign, when a lot of the major histories of his reign begin being published. 
they are functionally creating a type of social memory because they all belong to a relatively specific Constantinopolitan class. They are bureaucrats. They are people serving on the staffs or who have served on the staffs of major generals in offices like the Praetorian Prefecture, which is the sort of main economic office in the, the Roman state of this period of time. And a large part of what they're doing is kind of rejecting for their own social group, for their own social memory, the kind of narrative that Justinian is trying to create at the same time as they're also trying to offer ways to reject more broadly uh, outside of their narrow uh, groups, the types of historical narratives he's trying to construct. So there are a number of different ways in which historical memory comes into politics. And they're all pretty intuitive, I think, that you can you can imagine how they would work even, say, in modern America. They aren't, none of this is particularly novel or out there. So there's this appeal to tradition, right? This is the way we've done things, and because this is the way we've done things, if we look back and see where we've been successful, that sort of validates a certain approach. So we should have a certain configuration of the consulship because look how good the consuls did at conquering the entire Mediterranean. Uh, obviously, that's an argument that Justinian, who does not want consuls of the Republican model right. uh, running around, he's going to be opposed to. Um, it also allows for a sort of the definition of normative modes. One of the very interesting things Justinian, one of the very interesting things Justinian does in one of his novels is he actually creates a periodization of Roman history, which is sort of one of our topics here. And he says, well, the first one to look at is uh, Aeneas, who's a king. Uh, then we want to look at Romulus and Numa. So that's the beginning of the second period, also kings. And then let's just go ahead and skip all the way past the period of the consuls or the Republic and uh, Caesar and Augustus. That's the beginning of the next period. And then, of course, implicitly, he's kind of at the end of that process or possibly the beginning of a new period. And you see how that excising of the entire Republican period creates a normative standard of uh, imperial rule or monarchical rule that Justinian is very interested in, in supporting and, and validating through Roman history. Right. Yeah. He, he wants to see Roman history as a whole as being monarchical. He, he doesn't like the sort of Republican interlude. Uh, and uh, a lot of right. the writers of his time, were, that's why they keep harping on the Republic. You know. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair to Justinian, he ends up being right. If you add up the number of years in which Rome was a republic versus some sort of monarchy, even if we discount, even if we don't even bother with the kings, who are obviously a very sort of questionable historical uh, group of individuals, if you go all the way to 1453, for instance, it's far more accurate to say that Rome is normatively a, mon a monarchy versus it being any kind of republic. Yeah, and that's a modern anxiety, too. We'll get to that. Um, uh, so any other functions that uh, Roman historical memory serves in these political debates? Yeah, so um, we sort of alluded to this. One of the major roles that it functions, one of the major roles it fulfills is to provide alternative models. So history kind of, and the Republic especially, provides a sort of imaginative set of tools uh, that allows authors to articulate other ways of doing things, other modes of organizing the Roman state. Um, that they can then direct back against Justinian, who is a major reformer. He's changing a lot of things about how the Roman system operates. So, and he's doing this claiming always that he's restoring some sort of older or more authentic form of Roman tradition or trying to preserve elements of the Roman tradition. So knowing this history and being able to very literally, in some cases, quote it back against the emperor, or throw it back in the emperor's face, 
becomes a way of expressing opposition and sort of imagining other configurations of either certain offices like the consulship, and there are a whole bunch of, of lower offices as well, um, or broader questions about you know what exactly happened in the West. So we have a lot of discussions, some more explicit, some less explicit, about what exactly why are we over there now? Because Justinian launches these re uh, wars of reconquest, especially in North Africa and Italy. What led us to that? Where did this Western empire go, especially for someone whose history might cover the existence, you know, the period when that Western empire was actually there, the causes of its decline become very important politically. Right. So let's talk about some of those rupture points, because so you've, you've laid out the, uh, the ideological framework within which these debates are taking place. And it's, it seems it's pretty interesting. I mean, as, as is the case with classical culture today, it's both a source of sort of conservative validation and legitimacy. Um, you know, you cite a canonical author in order to justify your position, but also a, um, a reservoir of alternatives that can be called up um, in order to challenge a current power structure. Uh, you know, one can use Athenian democracy today, for example, to question, you know, indirect demo modern democracy, parliamentarian democracy. And so just, Athenian democracy is far more radical. Um, and so, um, you know, it seems to cut both ways. So let's look at some of the rupture points that they identify in the course of these debates, uh, because that's also kind of what we're interested in. That is, that, you know, even modern historians, where do we draw the line and say, I will go this far and no further in my coverage of Roman history? And you, you guys, whoever you are, medievalist, Byzantinist, whatever, you take it over from there, right? So let's talk about the kinds of uh, turning points or milestones that the writers in this period, and, and even more broadly in, Ro you know, in the Roman tradition generally, what do they use in order to mark ruptures? Um, and, uh, and we'll see whether any of them have anything to do with a sort of ostensible beginning of, of Byzantine history. Um, so... How do you, you want to take these in order? Um, shall we start with uh, the one that we've mentioned already, which is the transition from the Republic to the Empire? Right. So this is a, a very traditional turning point, and I think it's one that has a lot of weight to it in the sense that there is a meaningful shift in how the ruling system is operating. Uh, and it's a shift that you can sort of tell is significant because of the social and economic and just general disruptions that are created in, in Roman society by the introduction of an emperor. And there's a lot of good scholarship on this. This becomes interesting in the 6th century, well actually more at the very end of the 5th century because of a number of authors, I'm thinking here in particular of Zosimus, who's a sort of low-level official and the last openly pagan historian of um, of late antiquity, well, that, that might be overstating it, but he, he's very aggressively pagan and very um, pessimistic in many respects about the prospects of the Roman Empire surviving as a Christian empire. And he thinks that Rome is, is very, very critical. And he really harps on this change in part because, and he's not wrong about this, he points out that whereas the Republican system depended upon a, lot, a large number of people. It could draw from these vast reserves of talent, and there was competition to do service to the state. What happens with the transition to empire is a focus on one person. And if you have a good emperor, things go well, but if you have a bad one, nothing can go well. Um, and so he really views that as a fundamental transition in the nature of the Roman polity, and one that 
he sort of resigned to, but he, he locates a lot of the sort of misfortunes really with Constantine. So for him, Constantine is the sort of arch villain of Roman history, whose introduction of Christianity, whose foundation of Constantinople, um, set in motion all sorts of other terrible catastrophes that have led up to the state of the empire at the time that he's writing. Yeah. Um, and the major change of regime here would be from that of the consuls to the emperors. Um, but there were um, also, I mean, there, there are also ways in which some of these writers um, drew a line between earlier sort of better emperors you know, who were more, had more affinity with the Republic in their values and later emperors who were more sort of authoritarian. Um, yeah. Right. And a lot of that had to do with uh, manners and presentation. So there's one author in particular, it's a guy named John Lytus who writes this kind of very odd work. It's it's a history of basic, of various offices in the Roman state, which he creates what are almost entirely fictional origins for. So for instance, he thinks the Praetorian prefect, again, the major economic official in the sixth century, that that office can be traced all the way back to the second in command under the dictatorship, uh, the master of the horses. So that's, that's something that I don't think any modern scholar would agree with, but you can see how he's trying to use this history because he himself works for the Praetorian prefecture and would very much like for it to continue being a, uh, remunerative form of employment, uh, how he's trying to sort of bolster and have consequences for the modern world based on ancient history. So he's someone who really locates a significant change in the reign of Diocletian. Um, so this is the first emperor to really settle things down after the crisis of the third century when Rome fragments into a number of sort of smaller states for a period of time, about 50 years. And, uh, He's accused of, that is Diocletian, is accused of introducing a lot of Eastern ceremonial, the wearing of the diadem, proskinesis, the process of sort of bowing down and kissing the emperor's shoes. Uh, if anyone has ever seen the Ravenna mosaics, you'll notice that Justinian has very nice shoes with pearls and purple and everything like that. So uh, those would be the shoes you'd be kissing. That, that entire sort of ceremonial scene, as opposed to the more austere and that's coded very much in sort of Roman moral discourse as virtuous and masculine, the more austere presentation of the Roman senator where, yes, you have the purple stripe on your toga, but that's about it, right? You're, you're dressing in a very sort of reserved way. You're not supposed to show a lot of wealth. Uh, and the emperor is meant to be, to pretend to be the first amongst equals in this respect. Yeah, there's the, there's the Republican model of the emperor who is wearing a sort of senatorial toga, but it has more purple on it. Like that. So if you walk into a room and you're like, who's the emperor? There's the one with, you know, he's dressed more or less the same way, but he has more purple. Uh, and but there's also the military uh, model, which is the Roman emperor as fellow soldier. Um, and so they tell stories about, uh, you know, how a Persian, you know, envoy walks into a Roman camp and just can't identify the emperor because he's dressed like all the other soldiers and he's sitting in a ditch eating from the same gruel that they all are. You know, and th so that's the virtuous military emperor, whereas in the in the what we would call the early Byzantine period, we have more bejeweled, angelic. I think Eusebius calls Constantine an angel of God because he comes in with all these, his, his robes are so many gems that they're glittering and you know, that kind of model. So, so there's, a, there's a moral reading of a change in ceremonial that 
uh, you know, like ostensibly posits a kind of turning point around the reigns of Diocletian and Constantine as a, you know, so that's one possible rupture point, and, and we'll get to that, but it's very morally coded, like that's, that's the, yeah. Right, and there are other authors who do pick up on this in entertaining ways. So Procopius of Caesarea, the major historian of the period, writes this sort of unpublished, scurrilous kind of um, pamphlet, The Secret History, in which he accuses Justinian of kind of running around the palace half-dressed at all, all hours of the day and night, you know, constantly trying to innovate and do things, and occasionally his head disappears. Without and, his head, yes. <laughs> yeah, you know how it goes. Um, so let's talk about the other, the the big one, which is 476. So how is that discussed in this period? Right. So 476 was recognized as a breach relatively early on. So the first explicit mention of 476 as explicitly the end of the Western Roman Empire comes from an author named Marcellinus Comes, and he's um, one of these guys is from the what would now be the former Yugoslavia somewhere in that territory. He's a Latin speaker uh, by by birth. He's actually works for Justinian before Justinian becomes emperor. He's on his personal staff, and he writes this chronicle, uh, the first edition of which comes out in 518. We don't have that. We have a later edition that comes out in 534. So at least by the year 534, we have an explicit discussion of 476 as the end of the Roman Empire in the West. And this has led some scholars to accuse Justinian or accuse the court in Constantinople of manufacturing the date in the sense that this was something no one cared about until Marcellinus came around and said something important happened on this date. Um, be that as it may, whether or not this is something that the Justinian is behind or that the court in Constantinople is behind, it's pretty clear that it's being accepted insofar as no one thinks by the sort of later part of the reign of Justinian by the 550s that there's anything that could even be described as or, or imagined to be a Western Roman Empire left. Um, maybe Theodoric, who was um, the second of the barbarian kings after the guy who actually got rid of the last Roman emperor in the West. Um, that, that guy's name was Walker. So maybe Theodoric was kind of, at least in spirit, uh, a Roman emperor, but there's nothing there now. At the time of Justinian's reconquest, there's a broad consensus, even amongst people who oppose Justinian on almost everything else, that the Western Roman Empire is gone. And we see this sort of most explicitly in a guy uh, named uh, Giordane, is one of the major authors of the period, um, who in his history explicitly almost directly quotes Marcellinus Comes and reproduces the state of 476. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, uh, so in 476, um, what, I mean, essentially what we have is uh, one of these barbarian warlords slash generals who's running what's left of the Roman army in Italy, basically deposing the last emperor who was an 18-year-old named Romulus, um, retiring him to a villa and sending the imperial insignia to Constantinople, uh, basically saying we don't we don't need <laughs> we don't need this. This is yours. You hold on to it. Um, we'll just run Italy in your name, right? Um, and I, I'm not sure that Justinian. I mean, th there is this idea that Justinian was behind this ma the manufacturing the date as as a, an important rupture. Nevertheless, Justinian, as you mentioned, does give us a periodization of Roman history in one of his laws, and he doesn't flag that one uh, as that important, right? He mentions some other ones in addition to the ones we've talked about. Um, what, what does he add to the picture when he periodizes Roman history? 
So two sort of separate questions here. His periodization of Roman history is all about continuity. He is not interested in positing any major rupture that might undermine his claims to be, one, a Roman emperor, and two, the only Roman emperor. Uh, Justinian, even during the course of these reconquests, very clearly is uninterested in allowing and reviving the Western Roman Empire. He's interested in expanding the Eastern Roman Empire to reincorporate some territories that had formerly belonged to the Western Roman Empire. In terms of his historical contributions, they're a little vague. So where he does talk about this in the novels, he refers to this sort of abstract idea of sort of laziness, rathimia in Greek, um, negligence, something along those lines. And it's very much uh, an approach to, and he says very explicitly, this is what caused the Western Empire to fail, right. is that they were just kind of lazy. They weren't paying attention. They weren't working as hard as they needed to work. And you, you can imagine this is incredibly vague. It doesn't actually offer any evidence. But what it does very effectively is play off of his broader propaganda because in his own laws, Justinian is constantly talking about the investigations that he's launching to figure out why things aren't working. He's constantly talking about how he doesn't sleep. You know, He's doing everything that he can to constantly find ways to improve the Roman Empire, to look out for the good of his subjects. And so the idea that the Western Empire failed because it wasn't working hard enough plays off of that very well. And I should also say that early in his reign, up through the, about 540, this actually, this propaganda campaign must have been widely successful, I would imagine, because the emperor is saying, look, the Western Empire failed because they weren't working hard. I'm working as hard as any emperor ever in the history of Rome. Right, right. And also look at all the things that we've accomplished in terms of reconquests and codifications of law and all that sort of thing. Yeah, calling himself the sleepless emperor. and, and Right, all, all of which is eventually turned against him by his critics. <laughs> yes. Um, he didn't sleep because he wasn't human. And uh, But uh, he does mention, however, the foundation of Constantinople. Uh, doesn't he? And so does so do a couple of other authors. When they periodize Roman history, I think it's like Augustus is a turning point, the creation, the beginning of the monarchy, and then the foundation of Constantinople and the beginning of the emperors there. Um, that's another. And and in in the in a Byzantine view, Constantine and Constantinople would also go along with. Um, the adoption of Christianity as a state religion, though many of the authors under Justinian aren't too thrilled. About, they don't talk about that so much. Uh, some do. but So the foundation of Constantinople is another kind of turning point. It is. And we see this especially in uh, Lidos, who is kind of, I think, poking fun at Justinian's periodization. So one of the things that Lidos, who has links to all these, um, sorry, this is John Lidus, who has links to all of these Neoplatonist circles. So if not himself personally a pagan, who knows, but certainly he hangs out with a pagan-type crowd. And he points out at the beginning of his periodization of Roman history that, well, I guess we should start with Aeneas. Not that he really did anything that important, but people say he was a god, you know, a descendant of, of Venus. So, yeah, okay, we'll go ahead and start with him. Sort of putting his finger in the fact that right. the most Christian emperor Justinian was explicitly linking himself with this figure that claimed divine pagan descent. Uh, and he does go on and actually, oddly, his periodization uh, um, does cite the foundation of Constantinople. But then the period after that only goes up through the reign of Anastasius. So he actually kind of kicks Justinian out of Roman history entirely based on the periodization at the beginning of his work on the offices. 
And um, that actually mirrors something that happens in Jordanes, who at the end of his history sort of um, makes a joke or an allusion to the fact that Justinian changed the way that dating was done. So previously, the consular years had remained a very standard form of dating. There were others, indiction cycles, which were tax cycles and that sort of thing. But you mostly dated, especially in sort of high society, the year based on who the consuls were. And Justinian says, "Mm, let's not do that anymore. I'm more important than the consuls. We're going to date it by the regnal years of the emperor. And um, at the end of his history, Giordani says, if you want to understand why the empire is in such crappy shape, you should just go back and rewind, literally Revolvo, right? Roll back through the scroll with a list of the consuls on it, which of course creates a periodization of Roman history that excludes the latter part of Justinian's reign after he ceases to appoint consuls and... And eventually absorbs the title into his own titulature. Yeah, the consulship is another one of these criteria that's used. Um, And so we've got the foundation of Constantinople. Um, And, you know, moral arguments could also be made about Justinian. If you think he's a tyrant, uh, then the sequence of legitimate monarchs kind of ends with him and so forth. Okay, so we've identified a number of possible turning points in the sources, uh, keeping in mind always that they are thoroughly embedded within contemporary but rhetorical, political, uh, you know, ideological debates. Um, you know, they are used for um, e- effective purpose within some sort of argument. Um, we're not necessarily bound by them. And, okay, we'll, we'll come back to these in a modern context and see whether they are appropriate for use by us. Uh, but first, I wanted to talk about one more issue um, that's come up, and that is language, uh, because in in many of the periodizations that we use today, uh, that is when historians, and I think always artificially, try to separate Roman from Byzantine history, um, and it, it's difficult to do so in political terms, sometimes they will resort to language as, ah, that's the smoking gun here. Byzantium was um, almost exclusively Greek in its elite culture and the language of government. Um, And so that forms some sort of rupture. Um, And we'll we'll talk about whether that's a legitimate criterion to use, but it does come up in some of these authors in in different ways. But the criterion of language as, as positing some sort of rupture in Roman history does come up. Uh, um, so where, where do you want to start with that one? Well, we should start with the person who I think is most invested in this, and this is John Lydus again. And he's invested in this for a very specific reason, and that is that he himself knows Latin. And knowing Latin is a job skill that he doesn't want to see made obsolete. Right. Uh, so one of the things Justinian does is even though his codification of Roman law takes place in Latin, and uh, at least to begin with, he's issuing some of his novels in Latin, he eventually stops um, issuing them directly in Latin and and issues them in Greek and then translates them into Latin. So increasingly under him, and in particular his Praetorian prefect, a guy named John the Cappadocian, uh, who's an entertaining character, fabulously corrupt and decadent in his lifestyle, the sources are to be believed. Um, uh, So under their regime and administration, Latin really falls out of being the language of government, at least at the sort of official central level. And Greek more and more is sort of infiltrating what had been the preserve of Roman, of the, the Latin language in Roman government, and specifically the laws. So 
Lydus is very disturbed by this. He, and the latter part of his career, actually holds one of these endowed chairs in Latin uh, for the city of Constantinople. So he's someone with very direct financial interests in Latin being perpetuated as a language. So his his frustration over this and his attention given to this, in fact, he he goes out of his way to constantly, in his history of these offices, go through every etymology he can come up with, including many that are clearly just nonsense. So any etymology he can that can take him back to Latin, he will he will do to try and assert the validity or the usefulness of Latin as a language for understanding Romanness. But he is on the losing side of that battle in a lot of ways, um, insofar as, one, he didn't convince anyone, and two, the Praetorian Prefecture did not reform itself along the lines that he liked. In fact, it was sort of progressively demoted in ways that specifically cut out his role over the course of his career, and he's quite bitter about this. So. Uh, It's worth pointing out that the the most enthusiastic voice buying into this idea that linguistic change is significant and a sign of decline and a sign of fundamental change is someone with a direct financial interest in that linguistic change not taking place. Meanwhile, Constantinople during this period, as far as I can tell, is one of the, this is one of the most rich periods for um, bilingualism in the city that I'm aware of, in the sense that a lot of major authors who belong to similar social circles are writing and responding to each other across linguistic and also generic boundaries. So there isn't a Latin tradition in Constantinople, there is simply the Constantinopolitan tradition, and we see uh, iterations of it in both Latin and in Greek. Um, one specific example, this Marcellinus Comes guy that we mentioned before, who's associated with the regime of Justinian, right? He worked for Justinian before Justinian became emperor. He talks about the last of the Romans, and this is also this sort of trope. So who is the last of the Romans? And uh, he thinks that it's a guy named Aetius. That's the exact same person that Procopius identifies, uh, either him or a guy named Bonifacius. Uh, one of these two, Procopius says, is the last of the Romans. So here's a pretty clear example of two people using literally the, the precisely same phrase in two different languages and two slightly different genres of history to agree about the, the historical memory that they want to both authorize as this is what we think is true about the end of the empire in the West. Yeah, it's important for our readers to know that um, sometimes they'll encounter in, in history books the statement that at some point the uh, official language changed from Latin to Greek. And that's usually placed in the 7th century and is most commonly associated with the um, first use uh, of the Greek title Vasilefs by the Emperor Heraclius in one of his laws. Um, specifically in the title that he gives to himself in one of the laws as emperor, that is rendering the the term emperor in Greek. Um, It's important to note that there is no official language (laughs) in the Roman Empire. That's a modern concept. Um, What there are, um, what, what, what we find are just the language or languages that different institutions use at different times. And so the Christian church in the East always used Greek. Um, It started, it used Greek in the West as well. Um, This is why St. Paul is writing to Romans in Greek. Um, Then it switched to Latin. Um, Whereas in the East, we have different departments of state switching to Greek at different times. So you mentioned John the Cappadocian switched the operations of the prefecture. 
uh, or most of them, to Greek at some point. Justinian starts issuing laws in Greek in, the, in 535, and he actually says we're switching to Greek because this is the language that most of our subjects understand. <laughs> Um, and and this isn't like this doesn't cause Justinian any kind of you know convulsions of identity. It's just it's pragmatic matter, um, and um, so it, this is a very gradual process. Um, there's still a lot of Latin going on. There's no one moment uh, when uh, when the official language changed, assuming there was such a thing. Um, I think Heraclius's uh, change of the title from you know, whatever it was before, be it uh, uh, Imperator or some, some such thing, to Vasilevs is just a... I doubt anybody really even noticed because every... I mean, everyone in practice was using the term Vasilevs already. Uh, in, in right. even, even emperors, just not in their official titulature, but they were using it every, every other context. Um, anyway, you, you also identified some interesting discussions about Virgil taking place. Um, so I'd like to get to the to the to modern um, iteration of all of these anxieties about Roman history. But could you say something about Virgil because he's involved in some interesting allusions? Uh, um, um, yeah, absolutely. So Virgil is kind of everywhere in the sixth century in a way that I I didn't expect to find when I sort of began this project. Um, he shows up in places where we might expect him. So, for instance, there's a hexameter poem that describes a bunch of statues, and the poet of this poem is placing himself in kind of direct competition with Virgil in a number of ways, not the least of which is that he opens his poem by sort of uh, retconning, that is, massively redescribing uh, the, the death scene of a Homeric hero, a guy named Deophobus, which is this character is famous pretty much exclusively because of his very... Um, moving scene that he has in Virgil uh, that is in the Aeneid. But more broadly, there's an interest in kind of Aeneas-style figures. So a number of people across a number of different authors, but most especially Belisarius, gets turned into an Aeneas-like figure. And this makes a certain amount of sense, because Belisarius is leaving Constantinople, which is uh, geographically near Troy. He proceeds then to North Africa, which he conquers. Uh, not exactly what Aeneas does, but okay. And he proceeds from North Africa to Italy, where he reestablishes Roman control over Italy. So you can see how the journeys of Aeneas map onto this very, very neatly. Now, this is actually in some cases used to criticize Belisarius, who I think there was a, a significant political faction of folks who were interested in seeing Belisarius go to Italy and set himself up as Western Roman emperor because they preferred him, at least early in his career, to Justinian. But nonetheless, there's a, a broad interest in, in these Aeneas-type figures. Theodoric is, in some respect, uh, turned into this type of figure by Jordanes. Um, so, yeah, Virgil is all over the place, and we know for a fact that a large number of these poets who are writing during this period were from this school of poets that existed in Egypt for whom Virgil was an important text. We know that they were bilingual and were being trained and coming out of this bilingual tradition. So this is a period of um, incredible bilinguality, uh, is that a word, um, that's occurring in um, in Constantinople and allowing and facilitating these sort of um, cross-linguistic intertexts and these cross-linguistic borrowings. Okay, um, let's turn now to the modern context. Let's, let's, let's flip all of this over and see it through a modern lens. Uh, because there's a there's a there there are two group there are two sets of concerns here. One is 
historians who are wrote they're ancient Roman historians, and they need to identify some sort of point at which to end either their narratives or whatever study, whatever aspect of the Roman tradition they're studying. Um, and so they need some sort of convenient or inconvenient place to end. And on the other hand, there are Byzantinists who are struggling to find a place to begin. Um, and neither of those groups has sort of settled on some sort of consensus uh, about either of those points. And presumably, they need to be the same point. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, it makes no sense to posit Byzantium as a thing. Um, so we'll get to some of the particulars first. But uh, can you say something first about just the general kinds of concerns that animate um, modern anxieties about the end of Rome? Yeah, so most major powers in the probably from the 18th century in explicit terms, it, it's worth remembering that Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, the first volume was published in a very important year, 1776, uh, where a few things were going on in the British Empire. So Rome has been frequently linked, especially in societies that are slightly more free or open, that is non-monarchical societies, so say the British parliamentary system or the American democratic system, uh, the Roman history has sort of, uh, and an interest in that history is focalized on the Republic as a period of the loss of some sort of political liberty, and then in the fall of the Western Empire uh, in 476 or whenever the date is placed, because that's a, a fear or anxiety over the loss of a preeminent position in the world. So we see this in Gibbon, who I think is very much responding to those sorts of ideas about the British Empire at his own time, or that anxiety about the British Empire in his own time. And we see this very much now. So the election, the most recent presidential election here in the United States, has led to an explosion of discussions of, you know, are we like the Roman Republic in its final days, you know, which of course requires us to assimilate modern political figures with Roman figures who are actually competent. So I'm not sure that I I think there's much value there. But nonetheless, this is a, a part of a cycle, like the fall of the Republic, the fall of the empire. These are the topics that we keep kind of bouncing between based on what our current anxieties are at a particular moment in American politics. Yes, the current anxiety, you're, you're right. The current anxiety is, I think, mostly on the fall of the Republic uh, through internal domestic term, uh, political turmoil uh, so going back to the Star Wars model, right, the, the, the fall right. of the old republic and the uh, advent of uh, some sort of uh, emperor. Um, I, I remember the previous decade, um, especially with the Iraq War and the chaos that that was causing, I remember that that led to um, an, an explosion of studies of whether America is an empire, uh, something that, you know, was... No, it was it was known it wasn't, you know, that the United States was an empire was not conceded very often in mainstream either media or even political science. Uh, but after the Iraq invasion, it became very common to talk about that openly. And of course, whenever you uh, call America an empire it, immediately, like within seconds, your next thought is, you know, but. Are, are we going to fall? Is it falling? Are we close to, you know, whatever happened to the Western, the Western Roman Empire? Uh, I, I don't know right. of anybody who said, yes, America is like the Roman Empire. And that's OK, because that means we've got another thousand years. Look at Constantinople. 
Right. We're all just going to move out to San Francisco and keep keep things running from there. Yeah, we'll uh, switch yeah. to Spanish, right? Like, <laughs> we'll just yeah. change languages, switch location to something warmer, and carry on. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's funny because when I teach students, the one thing that my students know about Rome is that Rome fell. And that's interesting because for no other, I mean, there are plenty of societies that we could say have fallen in some meaningful sense, but that is not the most salient thing that a student who just has a sort of basic background knowledge of the world is going to bring into the classroom. What they know about Rome is always that it fell. Sometimes they know Mm -hmm. the Republic as well, but it's really that imperial fall that exists in a sort of broad level of sort of common knowledge in the United States to the exclusion of pretty much everything else, as far as I can tell from my students. Yeah, I think the cycle of these anxieties can be traced back to, you know, the the, the, Re- the American Revolution, um, the cycle that is whether uh, a free regime that is modeled on the old republic will fall because of the advent of some kind of either demagogic or dictatorial or monarchical impulses um, versus, you know, the anxiety about whether American hegemony uh, will collapse. And, you know, and, and very likely this, you can trace the same kinds of concerns in most Western countries that have had overseas empires. Uh, the British certainly had, you know, hyper-invested in anxiety about the Roman Empire. Um, anyway, okay, so I, I, I think that most of our uh, listeners are pretty... Uh, aware of that kind of ideological charge that the question of the end of Rome has. So let's shift it now to the East, uh, which has, you know, it's less represented in popular culture or in, you know, the, the you know, v- vernacular political debate. Um, and look at, um, you know, how this transition is managed. Now, I think, I mean, you and I are in agreement that um, they're, they're probably that strictly speaking, there isn't such a thing as Byzantium separate from the Roman tradition, that what we call Byzantium is just a, uh, a, a period, a phase of Roman history. And that, that doesn't really merit a separate name. And if we give it that, well, we'll talk about the grounds on which we can assign it a separate name. But it is part of uh, Roman history, as illustrated in part by how difficult it is to uh, to say when Roman history actually ends, uh, so let's let's uh, let's get into that. So just uh, why don't why don't you just uh, list some of the uh, turning points that you've come across uh, as to when Roman history ends, and I'll I'll throw in some more later. Yeah, so it, it's really wherever the author would like to stop writing about Roman history is where they will find an excuse for Roman history to end. So I've seen the Severins held up as an example of, oh, something different is happening here. They're, you know, Eastern types and um, really after Commodus, some, some fundamental distinction has taken place. The third century often gets thrown around, again, that period where the Roman Empire is breaking down into a, a smaller number of states before being reassembled. Uh, the process of reassembly, the end of that process is sometimes identified. We talked about Diocletian before. He's the one who does this, and court ceremonials can come up. The foundation of Constantinople is sometimes brought out because once you have New Rome, well, clearly we're in a different phase that is not just a New Rome in the sense that the emperor happens to be living there, but a New Rome that is meant to be an equal and permanent uh, counterpart to Old Rome. Uh, there are oftentimes breaks posited in the reign of Justinian uh, that is 
he is either the first Byzantine or the last Roman emperor. And increasingly, I think when people are making that case, they like to hedge. So he's both at some point, like halfway through his reign, he just decides he's a Byzantine now. Um, I'm not sure exactly how to interpret that because it makes Justin the second, his probably Latin speaking yes. uh, nephew, you know, who has a, a massive Latin poem written about his uh, accession to the to the uh, empire, written by this guy named Carippus, the first Byzantine emperor. Which is that's an odd way to kick off Byzantium. There's a lot mm. of Latin floating around. Uh, Heraclius, sometime around there in 641, oftentimes will get uh, thrown around simply because, with his death or at the time of his death, Rome is beginning to take on its medieval shape in terms of territory, um, and the the sort of dark century that happens after his death right so around 700 has also been thrown around simply because by the time we have good sources again we have a clear idea of what things look like in rome it's so massively different that the assumption is that a discontinuity of that size uh, has to indicate meaningful change in the politics or the society or the culture such that we're really dealing with something new and i should point out that what a lot of these have in common is that wherever there's a gap in the sources, there's a tendency on the part of scholars, especially those writing the broader narrative histories upon which or out of which these periodizations are oftentimes um, created, to simply say, well, for 50 years we just don't know anything, so clearly things have to be different on the far end of it. When, interestingly enough, if you go earlier, that logic never applies. The idea that there could be 50 years in the early republic that we don't know anything about of which there are centuries of the early Republic about right. you know, absolutely nothing, at least not with any real certainty. Uh, that doesn't create discontinuities there because it's kind of too early in the story. We're not ready to be done telling it yet. Uh, yeah, also in the second century. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, Roman history is assumed to be uh, continuous from its uh, completely unknown origin uh, it begins to look more historical around the late third and then second centuries BC, um, and yet nevertheless, that uh, it's, it's assumed to be a continuous um, story. So you mentioned some of the chronological uh, turning points that have been mentioned, that have been used, and and these are always like f for convenience. I don't think that any one of them in particular um, stands out. Um, I'd like to add some uh, some criteria, some more sort of thematic criteria that are used and th that sometimes overlap with those chronological points, right? So I've come across uh, the notions that the, uh, the style of government after Diocletian is more totalitarian and therefore not Roman. Um, you occasionally come across uh, claims that um, the, after the seventh century, the the, the the Rome the Roman Empire or Byzantium is too small to count as Roman, right? That I don't know the Islamic Caliphate is now bigger or something. Like you have to be the biggest thing on the block. Uh, Again, a criterion that is not applied retroactively because exactly course, there's a point where it's just the city. In fact, there's a point where it's just the one hill. It's so. a hill. Yes, <laughs> it's one hill. Um, yeah. At what point does on, on the other end, at what point does Rome become big enough that we can count it legitimately as Roman, right? Um, or or we, we're okay with growth, but not with loss. Uh, like, if you start losing, then you're a loser, you're not a Roman, right? Um, I've come across, we come across the criterion of language, 
Um, though there's no real place to put that, you know, I mean, because the Roman administration, even in conquered Greece in the time of the Republic, is very regularly governed in Greek. Uh, right, and, and Republican Romans of uh, unimpeachable Roman credentials like Julius Caesar are bilinguals. And Quintilian, of course, has that wonderful piece of advice for Roman parents where you don't talk to your kids for the first year of their life because you'll ruin their Greek accent. Right. <laughs> yes, yes. We don't uh, want them having those Latin accents. Um, yeah, yeah. No, the, the first history of Rome written by a Roman senator, the Fabius Pictor, this is, I think, in the early 2nd century BC, that was written in, in Greek. Uh, Greek, so Roman historiography by Romans about Rome that begins in Greek. Uh, Caesar was bilingual when he was stabbed. Not many people know that he uttered those words in Greek and not in Latin. Uh, they're just better known in Latin. Um, you know, Marcus Aurelius kept his diary in Greek. Um, so there's no and and more importantly, the administration. Um, of the Greek-speaking provinces was done uh, in Greek, um, always. Uh, and so there, there would have been no point in addressing all of those people in Latin. They wouldn't understand what you wanted them to do. Um, and anyway, uh, actually, the administration of the eastern provinces went through a, a heavily Latinizing phase in early Byzantium. Uh, when the court was established in Constantinople and the emperors moved there, and you have a you have a an increase in the presence of Latin, which actually influences the Greek language quite a bit. Uh, there's a bit of this paradox that you know when Constantinople is founded, the administration in the East becomes more Latinate than it was before. Um, uh, anyway, so you know these criteria. What other criteria? Um, Christianity. Um, some sometimes it, that's that's another one. To, it's hard to make a case based on that because it's coeval with Augustus and the monarchy. So, right as as later Byzantine historians are always very keen to point out as as evidence of providence. Right. Yeah, yeah. That that God sent His Son, you know, during the reign of Augustus for some for some reason that was important. Um, so it takes. You know, and there's still a lot of pagans around under Justinian, some some of whom may have been writing those sources. Um, so that's a sixth century or five century trajectory. That's that's half a millennium. That's a very long time. Um, so language change, religious change, these are all very long term processes, and it's very difficult to put you know put a pin in any one moment and say. Uh, you know, this is when it happened, and 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 all of this together. You know, I've even I've even come across eunuchs being cited. Uh, you know, the the prevalence of eunuchs at the court. Oh, clearly this is something different and not Roman. Is it? If you read Suetonius and Tacitus, I mean, you <laughs> about the Julio Claudians. Like, yeah, that's not a. Uh, yeah, or any of the the satires which talk about. I mean, so people might not know this, but the the phrase "Who watches the watchman" is actually from a. A satire about eunuchs guarding the women's quarters. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In early Rome, early Imperial yeah. Rome. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, and and recent scholarship has really um, downgraded the um, the impact of this kind of regime change 
Um, under Diocletian and Constantine, there seems to be a lot more smooth continuity uh, going on. Um, it, so I think that these kinds of factors are, are very difficult to use. Um, they suggest more um, the kind of ship of Theseus model, um, where this is a, a, an ancient logical paradox. Um, the idea is that if you have a ship at sea and it, it, it has a long life, and during the course of that life, uh, the, all of the individual components of that ship are replaced, um, and so at the end of the journey, there's no one plank, one piece of wood that was there in the beginning, but the changes were all made gradually, incrementally over time. So it's always the same ship. It has the same name. Um, but there's no one moment where you can say, ah, here's where it became that ship that we see at the end. Um, and, and I think that this transition is much more like that. And I don't, in the absence of any kind of rupture, I, I don't really see the case for, uh, you know, uh, positing some sort of new essence, uh, really. Well, and, and this question of essence really is at, at the heart of this, right? And one of the problems that I think, um, th that I think pertains to this question is that no one is actually defined because they consider it self-evident or obvious in some capacity until you really press them on it. What is the Roman part of Roman history? If you're going to say that this ends, even though there's a totally contiguous political entity that calls itself Roman and is stocked with people who believe themselves to be Roman, which is the only real criterion for being Roman, you know, how what then are you going to use to define Romanness such that you can exclude them? What then are you, you know, what at what point does Roman history begin, and what is the essence of the Romanness that you're going to link that history to? Yeah, ultimately, and totally yeah. Un, unanalyzed in say class, classical scholarship. No, because that becomes a problem in medieval history, and um, most classicists don't want to go there. And um, it's also just as we were uh, talking about in the beginning, it's it's enmeshed in ideologies that um, are difficult to excavate. Um, specifically, um, so w one thing that we haven't touched on is, and this obviously deserves a separate discussion, is the idea that Roman is something fundamentally Western, right? It's a, it's a tradition and a patrimony that belongs to certain powerful institutions in the West, um, uh, specifically in order, the papacy, the Church of Rome, the German emperors, who at some point started calling themselves emperors of the Romans, though there were no Romans of whom they were the emperor, um, the British Empire, and, and so forth. In other words, it becomes a very powerful, legitimating framework for Western institutions. And, the, and in order to claim it, um, at the time when they did, they had to very specifically exclude Byzantium from it uh, because that was playing by different rules. Right, and you, you can even see classics today, I think to its its sort of shame and discredit to some extent, kind of trying to reverse the polarity of that. So in the same way that the Roman heritage imbued these political systems with legitimacy or in this, some sort of ideological value, 
there is now an attempt to sort of claim that deposit back by saying, you know, we should still continue to study the classics, that is Roman history, the Athenians, that sort of stuff, because we, we did this thing for you, because we're important, we're in the sort of foundational matrix or the foundational DNA of Western civilization, of course, in the process buying into and perpetuating this notion of an exclusive Western civilization. Uh, and you see this in a lot of popular books, especially, I think, um, coming out of the UK, where that, that rhetoric seems to have a lot more purchase than it does in the, in the United States. Yeah. Um, I, as I see, the, if Byzantium is anything, um, right, it's, it's this constellation of cultural elements that emerges very, very slowly out of antiquity, uh, of this kind of biblical monotheism, or particular view of religion, and I don't think that that view of religion is actually independent uh, of the Roman tradition. That's another discussion. In other words, I don't think that just Christianity came along as this separate thing and started telling the Roman state what to do. Uh, I think that it was just as much, if not more so, in the opposite direction. I think the Roman state told Christianity what it was going to be after a certain point, what it was, what it could be and what it couldn't be. Um, and um, the Greek um, literary tradition and, and culture, but again, formatted for Roman tastes. <laughs> like, let's not forget that. We don't, what we have of antiquity is what Romans wanted to keep. Um, and uh, um, so e even the Greek tradition has been filtered through a Roman lens. Um, and the Roman element itself, which is continuous in so many uh, of, of, its, uh, of its aspects. And so I, I see this as something gradually coalescing um, throughout antiquity, uh, you know, probably from, I mean, you know, in a sense, Eusebius might have been right after all, like around the time of Augustus, uh, these things start to come together. Um, and I, I, I'd be interested in experimenting with um, longer views of Byzantine history. Um, so rather than push them later into the seventh century, where you completely lose a sense of um, the long uh, uh, period during which they're coming together, I'd rather pull it earlier. Uh, you know, I don't know about Augustus, but uh, um, figures such as Josephus, um, this is a, you know, a Jewish historian who wrote in Greek uh, about the, a number of things, but also the war, the, the Jewish war where the Romans conquered Jerusalem. Um, in many ways, he's a proto-Byzantine figure and was read that way by later Byzantines. And we have him solely because they were interested and nobody else was interested in him. Um, or in the second century AD, we have uh, uh, figures like uh, the uh, orator Elias Aristides, um, who wrote these speeches in, in Greek, uh, praising Rome. Uh, and uh, and he, had, uh, he had a very special relationship with a savior healing god of his Asclepius and he he would see the god in his dreams and in one of the dreams um, the god gives him his secret divine name uh, which is uh, Theodore Theodoros um, and and he was a very popular orator in Byzant uh, you know writer in Byzantium um, that that you know he he has been identified by uh, my friend in, in Athens Polymnia Athanasiadi as a kind of proto-Byzantine um, and and I think that there's, you know, that that's a that's an interesting way to view it, and so I I would uh, I'd be interested in pulling Byzantine history earlier, to the point where it can actually claim uh, most of <laughs> Roman history. <laughs>
Well, and it would be a fair response to the way that, say, classical scholarship has attempted to to annex and then fortify elements of what had previously been Byzantine history. Like we decided late antiquity was something we were interested in as a field or, or willing to be interested in. So in many ways, we decided, okay, this is a we'll go this far, but no further. So we just erected even ever more serious um, uh, boundaries in terms of investing in this idea of Heraclius or something like that as being a definitive ending point. Yeah, late antiquity is another, it's a very interesting issue um, or field to examine within this this, this kind of discussion. I mean, maybe we should do that um, separately. Uh, but, you know, it's done a lot of great things. A lot of great scholarship has come out of it, but it, it also does kind of function as a wedge that's been driven between um, antiquity and, let's say, Middle Byzantium, cuts it off from its roots. Um, I, I, I don't see a lot of scholarship moving, you know, from late antiquity uh, into later Byzantium. It seems to mo- mostly kind of disregard it. And so I don't see it as fun- functioning as a bridge, but more as a wall. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, but that's, a, that's, another, that's another big discussion. And so we should, uh, should think about having that. At the end, I ask my guests to recommend two good books that they've read, not necessarily on this topic, but uh, it's always good to have a good book recommendation. Yeah, so uh, I'm going to recommend two books, neither of which is related to ancient history. Um, the first of which is a book by Daniel Ellsberg, who reader, your listeners might remember is the guy who leaked the Pentagon Papers, sort of the, the first of these government whistleblower types that are back in the news again. But uh, it's called The Doomsday Machine. And very briefly, it's sort of part memoir and also part an account of nuclear policy um, from the end of World War II up through when he more or less left the government in the 1970s. Uh, This was actually, according to him, what he was most interested in talking about. The Pentagon Papers were a minor footnote. What he was really interested in getting out there was the information on uh, this nuclear stuff. And so he he had all these classified nuclear documents. They get lost, and he covers this in the book, and it's kind of, you know, it's skullduggery. It's real-life spy stuff with buried deposits that get lost and all this kind of stuff. But if we think about our current historical moment where there are two species-level threats to humanity, one being climate change, which is getting at least some attention, and the other being nuclear weapons, which are getting a lot less, this is a great account of how, really, how a bureaucratic system can deliberately blind itself to the logical consequences of its actions and the risks that it's running to the point where people are, you know, are just not thinking that what is not only possible, but inevitable according to their own plans could actually happen. Uh, And it's also, I think, a great story of how someone can recognize when they're in one of those sorts of systems and extricate themselves from it. Ah, right, right. You know, how do you how do you know when you're in one of these boxes and how do you get out of it? So I really enjoy that. Um, it might not cover a lot of new ground, but if you're not uh, super in depth on you know, nuclear disarmament and that kind of stuff, I think it'll be some surprising revelations in there. Uh, and then the other one I'd recommend is Private Government by Elizabeth Anderson. Um, and I think this is this is a book basically about how by a philosopher at the University of Michigan talking about how we should reconceive of um, the workplace as a form of government and like why is it that we demand representation in this one part of our lives but allow and just, you know give up so much freedom to managers and to bosses you know, including in America in particular health care right the ability to right, right, to stay right. alive in some cases 
Um, so why are we doing that, and why do we not conceive of this as being functionally a form of government? And I like this in part because we're constantly being told, I'm sure you get this as much as I do, that we need to be um, training our students for the job market, right? And we need to be training them to be good employees. And I think this is a, this is a great way to sort of take that mandate from the deans and really turn it on its head and start getting them to think about, well, what kind of, if we go back to Plato, how would Plato characterize the government? Right? Or how would Aristotle characterize the government you will be working under uh, as an employee for various different kinds of corporations? As an employee, exactly. Yeah. Um, I've, I've heard some um, interviews of her, um, and she's reviving a fundamental question, uh, well, what I would know as the Marxist tradition. Uh, but a lot of Americans, um, and I think the same is true not to the same degree, but also in Europe, they, they don't seem to realize that the fundamental rights that we are, that we have secured by law, or in the U.S. in case of Constitution, they don't always apply to employer-employee relations. Um, they're strictly about what the government can or cannot do, and yet how much of our lives is is spent in you know, citizen government interactions versus employee employer interactions. Right. A lot more, right? A lot more of our lives in, in some respects. And yet we don't think of the fact so what kind of political regime are we living in in those kinds of relationships? And, and from a kind of reflective point of view, it also I think sharpens some of the crises of our of our field, right? So the rise of adjunct labor or the increased use of graduate students. Right, right. If we start reconceiving of departments as being little governments, that I think sharpens the, and clarifies the, the exploitation that's sort of built into a lot of these relationships. And to be clear, we're not always in total control of them. But it, it might be worth taking a thought about what does it mean if, I mean, essentially what adjuncts are in that view is medics, right? They are <laughs> participating, they're, they're subject to liturgies, right? That is service work and all this kind of stuff, but they lack any of the protections and any of the capacity to vote on policies. Yes, well, as a chair of a department, I'm going to have to duck out of this conversation at precisely this point. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good, good spot to end then? Good spot to end. Thank you, Marion. It's been a pleasure. Uh, we should do it again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.